This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Hello, I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. This is really great for your arithmetic. You don't have enough money to retire on, at least not to match up to the lifestyle you're hoping for. That's financial expert David Chilton. You might recognize his name from his very famous book, The Wealthy Barber. On today's show, we'll have his take on Zoomer finances. It's impossible to name the huge variety of food options we have in the city. That's Joanne Cates, the woman who ruled Toronto's restaurant scene for four decades. She's stepping down as the Globe and Mail's restaurant reviewer, and she'll join me a little later on to talk about just how far Toronto has come as a food city since she started the beat in 1974. And today is Judy Garland's birthday. To celebrate, we'll hear some of her iconic songs and look back at her career on stage and screen. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, we lost one of the great minds of the 20th century, author Ray Bradbury. His early fame came in 1950 when he created The Martian Chronicles, a series of tales that satirized politics, racism, and other social issues. In 1953, he released his classic novel, Fahrenheit 451. It mixed social commentary with warnings about modern technology in a dystopian future that featured book burnings and nuclear war. Bradbury was honored with the Pulitzer Citation for his contribution to the genre of science fiction and fantasy. However, with over 500 published works, his writing transcended many genres. Ray Bradbury passed away at the age of 91 Tuesday in Los Angeles. Well, the Internet was one of the futuristic technologies Ray Bradbury was wary of. At one point, he claimed it hindered relationships between people. But he did find himself online later in life, and as a Zoomer, he was not alone. A new study by the Pew Research Center in the U.S. has found that 53% of Americans over 65 go online. That's a surprising increase from about 40% for the past four years. Pew also found that 69% of American Zoomers own a cell phone, up from 57% just two years ago. And when it comes to social networking, one in three use sites like Facebook and Twitter. It's graduation season and most people donning the traditional robes and mortarboards are about 17 years old. But in Shaker Heights, Ohio, one graduate is 80 years older. Anne Colagiovanni left high school during the Great Depression to work in her father's meat market despite wanting to stay and graduate. This week, at 97 years old, she received an honorary diploma from Shaker Heights High School. Wearing a white cap and gown, she had tears in her eyes when she saw her name on a diploma dated June 1934, the year she should have graduated. She says her father would be proud. She'd be so happy to know that 
that finally I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be a graduate. Anne also gets to share the graduation ceremonies with someone special in her life, her grandson Thomas, who just finished his high school education at Shaker High. Well, that's all right, Mama. And finally, Elvis is alive, at least as a hologram. The digital domain media group has announced it's creating an Elvis Presley hologram for live shows, TV specials, and other worldwide projects. The same group created a massive amount of buzz when they debuted a hologram of the deceased rapper Tupac Shakur at the Coachella Music Festival earlier this year. The group has the go-ahead from Elvis Presley Enterprises, but there's still no word on where and when the official debut of the hologram Elvis will be. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. He's a personal finance guru and the author of the best-selling book in Canadian history. You probably know David Chilton as the wealthy barber. He'll be appearing at the Idea City Conference next week, and I chatted with him about the prickly problem of Zoomer finances. First of all, are you surprised to find that our generation, Zoomers, Boomers, are heading into our so-called older years without having saved enough money and often in debt? I am surprised, especially at the latter, by the way. When I started out 25 years ago, very few seniors, even ones who were um, victims of low incomes, had debt going into retirement. So to see this uh, growing, uh, it's, it's really worrying me. And yeah, the savings rates have not kept up. A lot of people have been influenced, unfortunately, negatively, as strange as it sounds, by an optimism bias. They've always felt things would work out somehow, some way, as they got older and returns would be there. But now they've been sabotaged on so many fronts. Late-life divorce is more popular than ever. We're seeing late-light layoffs. And the big issue, I think, though, has been the returns. The market returns have been horrible the last 12 to 13 years and may continue to be for a while, frankly, with the world economic situation. Now we have negative real interest rates. You add all that up, combine it with the low savings rate, and you've got a formula for very challenging retirements for a lot of people. That's interesting that you mentioned late-life divorce. I mean, it is. I know this happens to a lot of people. I mean, they sort of wake up in the morning and say, you know, I don't necessarily have that many years left. I'm going to be happy for the rest of them. No, you're seeing a tremendous amount of that. In fact, you're seeing a lot of divorces late 40s and even 50s and sometimes 60s. They say, I mean, the experts say the woman's leaving in the majority of cases, and frankly, I'm not surprised. I don't know how you guys marry men. It's always (laughs) baffled me. But it's really hitting financial planning unquestionably. And again, you combine it with the low return environment and the fact that fewer Canadians have defined benefit pension involvement, and you've got a tough situation. You know, I don't mean to sound negative because you know me. I'm a pretty positive guy, but I will say this. When I sit down with couples or singles, uh, when they're in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, if they don't have a defined benefit pension plan, I would say about 75% are behind where they need to be by quite a bit on the savings front. That's a pretty big number. Isn't the bottom line that our generation is just going to have to keep working longer? It is. I mean, it's that simple. They are. They're going to have to keep working longer, and that creates its own set of difficulties in terms of taking away some of the lower-level jobs and instances for the people just entering the workforce and all kinds of issues. But you're right. That's the basic answer you have to give as a financial advisor when friends and colleagues come to me, and they want some complex, fancy answer. And I try to explain to them, this is really great for your arithmetic. You don't have enough money to retire on, at least not to match up to the lifestyle you're hoping for. You're going to have to work a little bit longer. We're going to have to spend a little bit less, et cetera. And most of them, by the way, navigate those waters relatively well. They really do. 
I mean, not that many are overwhelmed by this and decimated, but it is a change to their thinking that they have to adjust to. What else do we have to do to prepare? Well, I think one of the, the hardest parts is we need to earn more money with our investment returns, but of course those are out of our control. And so I think the parts you can control, you have to get better at taking advantage of, uh, for example, lower cost products. And I mean, the push towards this in the last 12 months has caught me off guard. It's amazing how many people now are saying, I can't pay my money manager 2 and 3% a year. There's just not the returns to allow for it. And they're looking for lower cost alternatives. In fact, some people are going back to GICs. They're emphasizing debt pay down. They're buying ETFs, exchange traded funds, because they're low expense ratios. They're trying to control the controllable, to use an overused expression. And they're also trying to gain more control of their emotions because so many people have sabotaged their investment returns or at least made them even worse than they would have been with these bad markets by jumping in and out at the wrong time. But I'm not going to lie to you. When returns aren't cooperating, overcoming the kind of saving deficits we have is challenging. It is. Even psychologically, how hard is it to set aside money right now when you're worried if you put it into your RSP and by extension into equities, you're going to do very poorly? That makes it more and more difficult to save. So it's tough. And that's why I think debt pay down is being emphasized by so many of the people I cross paths with right now. You keep hearing what a profligate generation we are. So it isn't that. I think there's part of that for sure. I mean, there's no doubt when I see spending summaries or I see details of finances, a lot of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, for that matter, younger people, spending still remains a huge issue. I mean, certainly returns aren't helping, but a lot of people have not saved enough. I mean, forget saving 10, 12, 15%. A lot of people have saved zero, two, and three. Now, lower income Canadians, that's perfectly understandable. Survival, Trump saving. In a lot of cases, their incomes have stagnated. Well, utility costs and gas costs and all kinds of other things have gone up. I'm sympathetic to that. And again, the math is not on side for that group. But we've had a tremendous number of people in the middle class or even the upper middle class who save very little. And I think that subconsciously, some are relying on inheritances. In some cases, by the way, for good reason, those will materialize and make a positive difference. But in a lot of cases, again, it's been blinded by an optimism bias that somehow things will take care of themselves. But they don't. We've seen huge gains in longevity. So people's parents are often living longer. And then they have children who are still dependent as they head into adulthood. I'm 50 years old. I have all kinds of friends who are dealing with both aging parents and kids still in the home. I mean, it is a very real phenomenon and challenging mathematically. And of course, it makes saving difficult because it raises costs. And psychologically, it also wears on people. I mean, it's tough taking care of a number of different people from different generations, but it is what it is. I hate to use that expression, but it really is. And we've got to adjust to it and try to get through it the best we can. I do think what we said earlier about lowering your costs and making sure you control the controllable there and also watching your spending are common sense things, but they've got to be done. You can hear and meet David Chilton on day one of Idea City. The conference runs next Wednesday through Friday at Kerner Hall in Toronto. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Toronto is a foodie's paradise, but it wasn't always that way. Joanne Cates spent over 30 years reviewing restaurants for the Globe and Mail, and in just a moment, she'll take us through the history of Toronto cuisine. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. For nearly 40 years, she had the power to make or break any restaurant in Toronto. From her perch as the Globe and Mail's influential restaurant critic, Joanne Cates watched the city's food scene evolve from nowhere to one of the most sophisticated culinary cultures in the world. I reached her at her office to chat about that journey. Joanne Cates, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, you are stepping down as the Globe's restaurant critic after 
38 years. What a run. Kind of a long run, huh? And it's been a great one. How do you see, in a nutshell, the evolution of Toronto as a food city over that period? Oh, it's been exponential and astronomical. When I started reviewing restaurants 42 years ago for Toronto Life, we were eating roast beef, often overcooked, Yorkshire pudding, and peas, often canned. A really, really high-class appetizer was a shrimp cocktail. And now... It's impossible to name the huge variety of food options we have in the city. And there's also very high-quality food. You can't eat as well here as you can in New York, but you can get kind of close. How do we compare to other international cities like Paris or London? I'm so tired of eating in Paris. Everything there tastes the same to me, costs too much and has too much butter in it. And Um, too much attitude. (laughs) Yeah, so I think we're way better... London is better, but astronomically expensive. New York is better, uh, harder to get into. Their restaurants are, are more insane. You know, you have to call 30 days prior to the dinner day you want at 9 a.m. If you call at 9.03, that's too bad. The tables are booked. There was a time, first of all, we wouldn't go to a restaurant until you had pronounced on it. You're too if sweet. You, if, you, if you said it was good, like we would rush to get reservations right away. And if you said it was bad, we would never darken their door. Do you think any food critic can have that kind of power now? Absolutely, Libby. I mean, I probably did last week. And I think if Chris Nuttall-Smith plays his cards right, he will. I have to disagree with you. I think that people are more sophisticated, and with so many bloggers and all of that, I I mean, don't you think that the power of the food critic has diminished somewhat? Not even a little bit. I think the bloggers are fabulous for telling us the news. Their niche, which we should recognize, is info. Who's opening, who's closing, who's moving, address, phone number, website. But once you have that info, the blogs can kind of let you down because you don't know who's blogging. You don't know who's buying their dinner. You don't know if they're the chef's cousin, brother, best friend, or lover. You say that you kept your anonymity. You believe that restaurant owners didn't recognize you? I haven't been challenged on that. Isn't that funny? It's something I always wondered and continue to wonder. Do these people know who I am? And I would say to the people I'm dining, somebody would say, you've been made, they're being too nice. And I would say, well, then they're really smart because they're not telling me I've been made. They're not plying me with champagne. So I honestly don't know. I remember, you know, my first sort of big dates, places like three small rooms. I remember going to Noodles. I remember Fenton's, for mm-hmm. goodness Wasn't sake. was that fabulous? Remember the flowers? Yeah. Oh, so gorgeous. So how far have we come since then, or what are some of the other landmark places? Uh, La Scala. Uh, I loved Libestingo on Queen. There were some great old places. But the thing that's interesting is then there were so few important restaurants that you and I could probably mention them if we sat down for 10 minutes and focused. Now, there are so many important restaurants, and they're so different, and they don't have white tablecloths. Okay, now you identified top food trends by the decades. Do you want to start with the 70s and end now? Well, the 70s was still the roast beef in Yorkshire Pud, but we just started to find out about fine dining, and we thought it was French. Remember that? Everything was French. Mm -hmm. Chocolate mousse, crepe Suzette, and it all had to be flambéed at the table. That was a big deal. Um, In the 80s, we got casual, high-end, 
non-spaghetti Italian. That was, you know, noodles and places like that. And Franco Prevedello was very influential with Pronto and all its cousins going up to Centro. Uh, in the 90s, we got the bistros, more casual fusion, a lot of Asian influence thanks to the great cooking immigrants, Thai, Vietnamese, more Japanese, more, more varied Chinese. And then we had a recession. And that knocked stuffing out of the dining scene for a good five years. Nobody did anything. And then in the 2000s, what hit was what we're seeing now, which is young, artistic entrepreneurs opening small places and doing exactly what they want and not caring about what the customer wants, either in style or comfort or food, and focusing too narrowly, if you ask me, on meat and meat fat. We here at Zoomer Media, one of our big issues is the Anti-Noise Pollution League, and it drives me crazy that even in places that cater to people or that are frequented by people in our demographic, you go with your loved one or a few friends you want to talk, and it's deafening. I mean, I've been in restaurants where it is so loud it's actually painful. And I think it's nuts. I agree with you, and I'm... and the. Part of why I think they, you know, call me an oldster on the blogosphere is because I'm always fetching about the noise and the lack of grace in a restaurant. 30-somethings go out to party and drink and have a bite. I go out to eat wonderful food and have wonderful conversation. Those are two very different needs. And the restaurants that are popular and indeed that are opening now are meeting their need, not ours. Is there anything we can do about this? vote with our feet. Don't go to those restaurants. Joanne Cates, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Joanne is still doing reviews for Post Media and online at postcity.com. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. That's the voice of the legendary actress and singer Judy Garland. She would have been celebrating her 90th birthday today. In just a moment, we'll revisit her triumphant career, tragic life, and timeless music. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Judy Garland would have celebrated her 90th birthday today. The iconic actress became a household name at a very young age when she was signed to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer as a teenager. She made over two dozen films with the studio, including the one she is best remembered for the 1939 film adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. After 15 years, she was released from the studio, but still continued an impressive show business career with record-breaking concert appearances, stage productions, and an eventual return to film acting. However, her personal life was always in turmoil. She was very insecure about her looks, plagued with financial troubles, and she struggled with drug and alcohol abuse and went through four failed marriages. One to Vincent Minnelli produced her famous daughter, Liza. In 1969, at the age of 47, Judy Garland passed away from an apparent drug overdose. Today, we'll honor her memory and celebrate her birthday with the song that became her signature, Somewhere Over the Rainbow.
That's Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Judy Garland's signature song. Today would have been her 90th birthday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll be here next week when we talk to Andy Sharpless, the CEO of Oceana, a group devoted to protecting the world's oceans and sustainable eating. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.